from the episode 325 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We got some real good ecclesiology coming for everybody. It's going to be dropping into your ears in just a moment. And we're, we've been on this kind of E-train, this ecclesiological look at all things in the church. That's a redundant statement, but I'm emphasizing this idea of, which we'll talk about, being called out, what the church is, how it behaves in culture. And we're kind of finding ourselves moving into kind of increasing levels of technicality. We're going to be talking about all kinds of church structures coming up. So if if you've ever wanted a, a whole series of podcasts on different church structures, because you're like, that's the thing that really excites me <laughs> deep down. That's just a teaser. That'll be coming for you. But on this episode, we're going to talk about the invisible church, which again, I know people are yelling at their devices saying, you've done this already. That's partially true. It was the mostly definitive episode, but now I think we're going to talk about it in light of the direction we've been going and really get into some more practical aspects of this. What does it actually mean when you show up to your place where you worship, but also the body to which you belong? So this idea of the invisible church, I'm looking forward to as another conversation that puts us well on our way into practicing the things that we say that we believe and understanding what the Reformed theological stream, how that kind of flows into all of these ideas that we sometimes read on a page but then maybe sometimes struggle or mistranslate when we put them into our lives. And we've got to affirm and deny some things before we get there. I want to start with this, though. Before we get to affirmations and denials, here's a little bit of an audible. The reason why you're hearing this podcast is because so many great brothers and sisters have come together to make sure that it can drop into your device of choice totally free of charge. And so there's lots of people that participate in lots of different ways, bringing their conversation and their voice. But some, after they satisfy the giving that rightly belongs to the work of God through the local church, have also said, you know what? God is going to be a little bit left over, and I want to support financially all of the costs so that the Reformed Brotherhood remains free of charge and liberally distributed wherever you can get podcasts. And we had another brother join the ranks this week, and I just want to thank Brother Chase for coming along through patreon.com backslash Reformed Brotherhood and saying, you know what? I've got a little bit to give and I want to join the ranks there. All of these little contributions mean a lot to us because literally they cover the costs and this is cliche, but in a time where it gets more expensive to keep the lights on or the house heated, all of this helps us to make sure that our little tiny mission with this podcast continues to drive forward. So thanks, Brother Chase. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Um, he sent us a nice little uh, message too, just wishing us some some blessings and sharing his um, experience with the podcast. And that's really what it's about is people people find this show and it uh, in God's providence, it reaches them in a particular point in their life and in their own spiritual life. And we hear, we hear all the time, it, it humbles me, we hear all the time that people seem to come upon the show at sort of like just the right moment. I don't want to get all like like Kay MacArthur, Esther Bible study, like <laughs> such a time as this, but the, they seem to stumble upon the podcast at just the right moment on just the right episode. And we, I, I've heard that same account multiple times. Um, and it, it's entirely God's providence. We don't target advertise. We don't do anything like that. People just find the show when they find the show. 
And I just think it's awesome that people are willing to give of their own finances to make sure that that can continue happening. So we appreciate people like Chase who have jumped on board. Uh, if you are not in a position to give and you still want to support the show, the best things you can do to help support us other than to pray for us, which is kind of kind of just the, the no-brainer obvious thing, uh, is to leave a review on iTunes or on Spotify or anywhere else that you can leave reviews. That doesn't do a lot to change like the search algorithms. I know you hear that on every single podcast you've listened to. It's not actually true. But what it does do is when people do find the show and they're trying to think about whether or not they want to listen, it gives them sort of a, a perspective of, yes, this is worth my time or no, it's not worth my time. So you could go and leave a review or even better, if you know someone that listens to podcasts and they don't listen to the show, then pick out your favorite episode and share it with them and ask them to consider listening to the show. We want the show to reach more people, not because of any desire for our names to be great, but because we think that we are preaching the gospel through this show and everybody needs to hear the gospel. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you still need to hear the gospel every day. So um, write a review on iTunes. Uh, leave an honest review. If you've got feedback for us, we read those reviews and and we take into account what people have said and what what recommendations they've made. Uh, and right then uh, share your favorite episode with someone who doesn't listen to the show. Those are the two best things you can do to support us. Our Lutheran listenership just doubled with you saying like you need to hear the gospel <laughs> preached to you every day. That was like very Martin Luther, and That's I true. I absolutely loved it. So yeah, when brothers and sisters come together, especially to help through support through patreon.com. What that does is it keeps that gift going for lots of others who will find it. By the way, can we get somebody to start like a providential podcast called for such a time as this? Yes. That's actually a really killer name for a podcast, like yeah. a reformed theological podcast. That's brilliant. It'd have to be like a news show though, like a, like a current events show. Yeah. Called for such or, a time or as like this. for such a time as this or in the fullness of time. That's also a great name. It's true. For a podcast. Yeah. Okay. Somebody did that. Anyway, uh, we're spilling over because those could be affirmations altogether right now. I wanted to kind of switch it up and let's end on this like high and uplifted note. So let's start with denials. What are you denying against? Um, well, I'm denying, and this is sort of a weird niche American thing. Um, not like niche America's like 330 million people. Um, I actually got a question in the Telegram chat about all the weirdness going on in Congress right now in the House oh. of Representatives. <laughs> and I, this happened actually two years ago, uh, or was it four years ago? Whenever the last Senate was seated, that was a straight 50-50 split. Um, there's a basic misunderstanding, in my view, of how American congressional politics work, right? So you hear on every news show, part partially because of the news is dominated by by mostly liberal voices. And so the fact that they can't get things done, they can't make changes, is something that is being kind of bemoaned. But the 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 idea that like this locked up government that can't can't make changes is somehow uh, a broken system is I think a fundamental misunderstanding of how the American political system is supposed to work. So in a in an idealized situation in a hypothetical situation, the makeup of our uh, elected representative, that's the keyword representative government is supposed to reflect the makeup of the country, right? It's a representative government. It doesn't work out perfectly, but that's the idea. And so if you have a country where half the people want a, and half the people want B and a and B are totally contradictory to each other, then it wouldn't be right for 
the country to impose A or the country to impose B. And so the way that our political system resolves that is either nothing can happen, neither party gets what they want, and neither party has to suffer through what they don't want, or ideally, the two parties come together. And I don't mean parties like Democrat liberals. I just mean like these two groups of people come together and they propose a third way and that they can agree on. Maybe they make some concessions or they compromise, but they propose a third way. So the fact that our our Senate for the past uh, several years, two years now, has been basically deadlocked and can't get anything through, that's not a bug. That's a feature. That's actually the way that the system is designed to work, is that if the country is is that divided and polarized, then the government shouldn't be able to make large changes to what's going on in the legal landscape of, of the country. Likewise, the most recent thing has been the House of Representatives, where we couldn't get a speaker elected. And I don't know all of the details of how the speaker of the House works, but the speaker, as far as I understand it, is a it's a significant role. It's third, I think, in line of succession to the presidency. So if the president and the vice president are both incapacitated, killed, resign, whatever, leave office. The speaker is the person who assumes the presidency. So it's a significant role. The speaker is the one who sort of is the gatekeeper for all legislation and debate that's going to come to the floor. So it's a very significant role. And the fact that we couldn't elect a speaker, what had to happen is the speaker had to sort of like negotiate with different parties who weren't willing to vote for the person who was being elected or was being nominated in order to sort of make concessions and settle the house in such a way where there was rules in place that parties could agree to. One of them was a restriction on the speaker's power. So I don't know what the rules were before, but I think now it's like the only one person has to make a motion to remove the current speaker. And that was basically to say right. like, look, I know you don't trust me, so I'm going to put this rule in place or I'm going to, we can put this rule in place where if if I fail you, if I don't follow through on what I'm promising you, it's really easy for you to remove me from this spot. That is not a bug. That's a feature. And so we should actually anticipate over the next two years, three years, whatever the term is for the House, um, we should actually anticipate a somewhat locked up government. And that's frustrating. Maybe this is the Presbyterian in me, maybe to preview some of our uh, future ecclesiology episodes here. Maybe this is the Presbyterian in me, but a, a slow plotting methodical process. And in this case, one that's kind of locked up because there's not a lot of agreement on what the way forward is. That's actually not a bad thing. And that's the way that our government was designed to work. So I know it seems strange to be like, well, our government can't get anything done, um, but this is actually the way it was intended. So I think it's just a basic misunderstanding of the the purpose and the nature of the way the American government system is set up to think that like the 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 locked up Senate or this locked up kind of locked up um, Congress that that is a bad thing or that that's somehow uh, a malfunction or some sort of uh, malfeasance or something like that. Um, it, it's not. It's just the way that it's designed to work, and it's a frustrating time. Everybody wishes they could get their agenda through, but the fact that we have two competing agendas and both sides are saying we don't want that the other person's agenda means neither neither side can push something through that the other the other similarly sized uh group is not on board with it means we can't push that through so i think it's good i'm denying a misunderstanding of this and i, I just think i look at it yes it's frustrating but this is actually by design there you go everybody just got a pretty good lesson on American politics, some of the inner workings of how our House of Representatives works, if, if people are not familiar with that. I'll tell you who the real winner of this was, and that it, people will know this in the US, but I'll try to explain it, is what we call C-SPAN. That's a television <laughs> channel yes. 
that basically just records a lot of political activity, especially like the, the inner workings, the voting of the house. And that channel had like 379,000 viewers on Tuesday as all this was unfolding. That's like over 160% increase over the normal viewership. And then it actually went up further to 957,000 viewers as this continued to unfold later in the week. So there you got all this, this drama. So it was fun to, and I I watched it too. I watched it online a little bit just because it's kind of interesting. And like you said, right or wrong, we're not judging the way that the framers of our political machinations determine what they thought was best, but merely to say it's really meant to spur great dialogue and debate and right. to distribute and disperse power such that when there is near parity and ideas or representation, then by design, it will be slow working because the idea is to make sure right. that there isn't some kind of overreaching of power. So that distribution comes at a cost and it does make for good TV. So C-SPAN Certainly one out this week. What I think is so interesting is so just the C-SPAN thing. If you if you were to tune into C-SPAN during a normal session of Congress, there's right. a very specific regimented like angle that the camera right. can face. Well, yes. since there's no. So one of the things that's been somewhat problematic, although we're only five days into the session, so it's not exactly like the end of the world that it's been delayed. But one of the things is that they can't vote on procedural rules or even swear in new members of Congress until this element of it is settled because they need a presiding officer. It's kind of like if you had a church, uh, like a church business meeting and you need to elect a moderator and nobody nobody was willing to stand as moderator. You can't actually I mean, most most churches have some sort of backup plan, but you can't actually even have the meeting. Well, one of the things is, is that they can't even they can't even talk about what the rules of this session of Congress are until the speaker is installed. So C-SPAN could film wherever they want, which is not normal. And this was the funny thing. So when when new members of Congress are brought in, they often bring their families with them. So the way this has normally worked for like the last hundred years is the the voting for the speaker is more or less a, a, a formality because it's it, you have to have a majority of the Congress has to vote for a particular speaker. And so typically the majority party just, they just all vote for the speaker that is of their party. And so it's, it just is the first vote passes. So all of the the new people and the, the returning bring all their family and they're all dressed up and they're all ready to take like this big seated Congress picture. And, and it's a big photo op. Well, so there, some of these people have been bringing their kids to Congress now for five days there was one person who had like a, their like baby in like a baby carrier, like feeding them while they were talking on like the monitor. And one person brought their dog. And it was funny because they were like, well, you can't have dogs on the seat of uh, on the Congress floor. You can't have dogs here. Like there's no dogs allowed. And she's like, there's actually no rules. So I'm going to bring my dog if I want to. And they're like, oh, I mean, I guess you're right, actually. Like there are no rules because Congress isn't seated yet. So it's, it's it is a really interesting sort of like strange strange feature of American government. And it's one of those things like none of us have ever seen this happen in our lifetimes. So it's interesting to sort of watch it unfold. Yeah. I would say if you're from outside the United States, which is super cool, look it up. You'll be pleasantly entertained by the way, which uh, us Americans have brought this about. And like you said, it is a nice feature. So I'll take it. It's, it's been super fun. So what are you denying today, Jesse? Okay, so longtime listeners maybe are familiar with the fact that one of my favorite annual publications sounds like an affirmation, not one of my favorite Apple, uh, public, what, what am I trying to say here? One of my favorite publications annually 
is the Old Farmer's Almanac, which is self-described as useful with a pleasant degree of humor. And so within this book, which is published annually uh, afresh, is all these interesting things about the celestial calendar and about weather and about useful and interesting events that have happened, some poetry. It's folksy. It is fun. It is insanely useful. The forecasts are actually remarkably accurate, and I would encourage you to pick one up because you can find all of the reasons why. But there is a part... So. Most of the almanac leads me, honestly, to doxology. I get it because I love to see what's happening in the world that God has created and how there is an orderedness to that world, that it's not subject to chaos, that even in the celestial bodies, in the way that they can be precisely predicted to rise and to set at certain times, that the tides come in and out. And then beyond that, as the world turns, of course, that we see all of these shifting of landscapes in the sky and that we can do with great precision. All that makes me worship God. There is a part, though, that makes me super sad. And this is the part I'm denying against. I'm actually denying against spirituality because there is a whole section in the Almanac. So you, you read it and you think, okay, these are people like me. We're like-minded. We're interested in the world that has been created. And somewhat like Romans 1, we see that God has marked himself in that creation. And there is a hungering or a thirsting for something that is transcendent, that is of a spiritual nature that connects with who we are beyond our physical natures. And so then I come to these pages that are near the end of the Farmer's Almanac, and they are chock full, not of the kind of worship in God's goodness that we'd expect, but rather they're filled with things like this. Spiritual healers, spiritual psychics, spiritualists. Let me read you just like some of this, the strange ads that we have going on here. And God's messenger, religious holy worker, reunites lovers forever, clears stumbling blocks, stops root work, solves problems, never fails. 49 years experience, Fayetteville, North Carolina. I should give out the phone number so that all of our listeners can call and be like, Anne, you are not God's messenger. <laughs> God's <laughs> messenger is, is, is Jesus, but I won't. Uh, here's another one. Guaranteed help in 24 hours. Mary White, psychic spiritualist, calls enemies by name. Removes bad luck, stops breakups, brings back lovers. Here's another one. One call solves all. Spiritualist Lisa Love, luck, money, health. Specializing in reuniting lovers. That's a common weird theme for some reason. Stops breakups, finds soulmates. Now, of course, these things only appear in this book because somebody is actually searching for them yeah. and has used them in the past. It just makes me grieve. And so I'm just denying against this kind of spiritualism. It is yeah. that adventure in Romans 1 where the sinful man in his own darkness and blindness will search for anything else except for God. There is not one who comes seeking and searching God apart from the Holy Spirit. And I could read for you easily a dozen other advertisements of similar nature that are basically promising to be God yeah. because they're trying to invoke some kind of spiritual authority that they can provide as a service. How horrible is that? As a service to somebody else. So I'm not denying against the almanac because I love it. There's actually so much good stuff in here. I'm denying against uh, the fact that spirituality in this nature of trying to find a replacement for God is so prevalent in our world and preys upon so many of us when we find ourselves separated from God. Yeah. That's funny. It reminds me, sometimes I wonder like what would happen, like how these spiritualists. So I'm of the opinion that most, most people who advertise themselves as like spiritualists, psychics or whatever are just 
straight up like con artists doing cold readings, like mentalist type right. stuff. I'm not excluding the possibility um, that some of them have tapped into some sort of demonic, or I should say the demonic powers have tapped into them and are utilizing them in For some sure. sense. Um, but I think most of them are just making it up, right? They're, they're just doing cold readings. Um, and you can, there's actually a documentary, I think it was called The Miracle Worker. Uh, yes. Actually, that might be a claymation Jesus movie. But um, there was a documentary uh, where basically <laughs> like a first. famous mentalist um, <laughs> trained some random guy to be a charismatic faith healer and taught yeah. him how to do cold readings, taught him how to how to do charismatic preaching. Um, and so I think there is definitely that reality. That's, I think, describes most people. I've often wondered what most of these people would do if all of the sudden they they were actually experiencing the supernatural and it reminds right. it reminds me of the witch of endor not like not like the forest moon of endor where darth vader and luke skywalker fought um but like the witch of endor from second second samuel i think second Deep samuel. cut yeah and um i'm of the opinion that this woman was a charlatan and then Saul came to her and was like, can you call up this spirit? And she calls up Samuel and Samuel actually appears and she's like, what yeah. the egg? This is Samuel. Yeah. What are you doing right. to me? I, right. I actually think she was really surprised that that happened because I think she had a, a nice con going on. Um, I, I'm, I'm often wondering what these people would do. And I think what's sad to me is that e even the people who aren't con artists and have, have either either have been tapped into by some sort of spiritual force or um, – have convinced themselves that they have some sort of power, some sort of ability. They are in for such a rude awakening. And I just hope that I, I pray that that rude awakening happens on this side of death and that there's time for them to repent because yeah, there's really a rude awakening coming, coming one way or another. It's just a matter of when, and, and I, I pray that God is gracious to these people, but I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of people out there that are searching for something and they're searching for something spiritual and they're going to find it uh, either in the truth or in uh, or in a falsehood. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why it's important. We just preach the gospel everywhere we go. Yeah, for sure. Spirituality as like a general concept, as an idea, as something to kind of lean into as a hobby. Super dumb. I'm just yeah. going to say it that way. Super dumb. Super like dumb. we invoke time. those words in a particular Christian sense, but we don't actually embrace them like wholly, like in the sense that. The spirituality that we talk about is rooted in a person. It's rooted in our God. And so it's not divorced from him. This is like a weird divorce, of course, that's looking for that kind of relationship outside of him. So, of course, it's like everything God has made. Sin is a perversion yeah. of that thing. Ironically, you already, you were like trying so hard. I could feel it to set me up for my affirmation. So I'm going to pause and turn it over to you to yours because my denial and affirmation are kind of this, this tenuous connection. Oh. And I, oh my goodness, you were so badly, like I could feel it. Did you feel it? <laughs> I, you were really bringing me there. I mean, is it about Star Wars? Is it about Return no, of the no, Jedi? Because no. <laughs> I feel like it could be. I love that's where you thought it was going to go. Is it about the uh, Ewok movie that apparently never happened? No, There's but uh, we, could, we could talk about, yeah, Ewoks. All right, let's go into affirmations. What are you affirming with? So I'm affirming something called the McKenzie method. Have you ever heard of this? I have. So I, last week on the podcast or on, on the bonus episode, which by the way, if you haven't listened to the bonus episode with Jesse's mom and my mother-in-law, go back and listen to it. It was really, really a treat. Um, I was in the house, but I was not present during the recording, obviously. So I was listening along with everyone else and it was just so much fun. It was a lot of fun. 
uh, it was nice for me to see inside sort of behind the curtain of what what some of these traditions that I've been in, adopted into mean and where they came from. So check that out. But Jesse disclosed on that podcast his age. I don't know if you meant to, but you did. I think it's only fair that I also disclose my age. So I'm turning okay. 40 now in a month here. And like That's most true. people in this age of life, I've got some lower back problems and some neck problems. So my doctor recommended this book called Treat Your Own Back, which is by Robin McKenzie, who has a CNZ, a CNZM, an OBE, an FCP, which is honorary apparently, <laughs> an ENZSP, which is also honorary, a DIP MDT and a DIP MT. I don't know what any of those mean. They are impressive though. Uh, wow. But he is from New Zealand and he is a, a physical therapist of some sort. And he's developed uh, a method called the McKenzie method. Um, and the treat your own back book is very straightforward. It's very simple. And it's funny because when I first started having these uh, back problems, I, I don't know about you, but anytime I have like pain issues, you sort of figure out over time, if you're diligent, you figure out how to fix it. Right. Most of what I did actually is encompassed in this book. It was saved me a lot of time to just get the book and read it. So check it out if you've got any sort of lower back problems, any sort of like pain problems, they probably have a book that's related to it. So it's Treat Your Own Back. Um, he's I'm, I just bought the Treat Your Own Neck version on uh, Kindle. But I'm affirming this because it's straightforward, it's simple, they're easy reads, and they're things that are not all that difficult or complicated. It's not like... Uh, it's not like all of a sudden you have to learn how to do like gymnastics to treat your own back. It's like lay down on the ground for a couple of minutes with your face on the ground, like stretch your back out this way, stretch your back that way. It's very straightforward. But I found a lot of relief for my back pain uh, with this method. And since we're a top 50 healthcare innovations podcast, <laughs> still fighting for that title, uh, I figured I would recommend this book. I can only help that. uh, chat like GPT is like somehow reading a transcription of everything we're saying and is actually <laughs> making our case stronger all the time yes. for the fact that we're, we're top 50. Yeah. I don't think I, did I mention this or not? Like last year, this time you remember, and most people maybe don't know that I threw out my back at your house. Yes, I do remember. That. And that was the first time I'd ever really done that and experienced the kind of back pain where people talk about that they can't move. And uh, it was super scary. Yeah. I, and you were very helpful. I, I remember you, uh, you helped me with some Aleve. <laughs> and then uh, walked me to the car and we somehow got home. It was, uh, it was scary. So like, yeah, it's amazing how it really good training, really good, like remediation for any kind of like health muscle, like skeletal stuff often is not about that thing. You, and you really kind of need an expert to help you yeah. say like, because in a moment like that, you want to say like, what do I need to do my back? And sometimes you'll go and get physical therapy as I've done for lots of things that have happened to me. And you'll be like, why am I doing this thing? And they'll be like, well, because healing is not really about the thing that's hurting you right now. It's about, it's about something else, yeah. else because yes, that thing that hurts you had to overcompensate. Right. So that's a great resource. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I do remember you hurting your back. I, that was a, oh, that was an interesting so afternoon. We were trying to set up for uh, a baby shower actually. That didn't so happen. So awful. Uh, and it was Jesse and I were moving tables and all of a sudden Jesse's back goes out and he lays down on the ground. I went to go get some Aleve or something. I come back and he's like, I think I live on your floor now. Cause I can't get up. <laughs> I was like, just, was just, so just calm down. It'll be okay. It's going to take a minute. So your back will stop hurting in a second. It'll slow down a little bit. 
It was so painful. Now, yeah. of course, like for me, that had led up to like we had done some painting of being like yeah. all these like contortionist like positions, bending over constantly. Yeah. I had done some really foolish like studying that week where I'd like been bent over on the floor at the computer, you know, huddled over. But it happened just because I bent down to pick up you right. that ottoman. I didn't even touch it. Yeah. And then like there was a spasm. I just went down like I couldn't help but to like just be down. And the the last thing I did before that, which every physical therapist and every doctor that I've seen has been like, yeah, that like just as straight up to me, said to me, that was dumb. It like just <laughs> just like the, a visceral response was they said to me, well, what did you do right before that? Like right before that. So well, I walked into the room. They'd be like, no, 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 no. You said you were moving stuff. What'd you do? And I was like, well, I moved a dresser into position using my foot, yeah. like lifting up from the foot. And they were like, yeah, that's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show like your body is a machine that God has created to work a certain machine. way. And I mean, your body is a machine. My body is less than a machine. <laughs> Jesse's body is a machine. Uh, but like God true. has designed it to work in a certain way and yeah, to, yeah. to be structured a certain way. And be, normally we, we, we find those things normally. Like we figure out how our body is supposed to be positioned normally. But when things get off kilter, like they get really off kilter really fast. Yes. And sometimes it's counterintuitive how you get back to like a state of equilibrium. So these, these books, this, I haven't read the other ones, but this book has been so helpful to just, even just to understand why it is that I have back pain. And like, as GI Joe taught us, knowing is half the battle. Like, <laughs> It's just really helpful. So check out the book. It's called Treat Your Own Back, or they have Treat Your Own Knee, Treat Your Own Neck, Shoulder, or Hip. Pretty much, I would assume, every joint of the body, you can treat your own with the McKenzie Method. No, I'm not getting any sort of commission for this. It sounds like you're almost saying, given the breadth and scope of the things you can treat, you're kind of saying, treat yourself. Treat yourself. Yes, treat yourself. <laughs> That's another deep cut. Oh, that was so good. By the way, speaking of deep cuts... You referencing GI Joe, you basically just leaned into our collective ages. That that itself it's kind true. of shows like a particular time horizon and an ilk right there. I'm interested. So. Maybe maybe I don't want to hear this, but I'm interested to hear before we disclosed our ages how old people thought we were. Just from our voices, yeah, just from our voices and the way we we talk and interact with each other. So. I, I, maybe I don't want to know that. Ooh. So that's just a slippery never mind. slope, brother. Just never mind. Never yeah, mind. that's a survey you may not like to see the results. It's true. Of. It's true. Yeah. Well, why don't you hit us with your affirmation? I'm on pins and needles here since you hyped it up. Are all. you really? Yeah. Okay. Well, so hopefully I'll tie this together in a way that is uh, meet your expectations. I'm gonna try to keep this quick, but here's the warning, and this is mainly for you and I. This affirmation could massively derail the rest of the conversation. We're already 30 minutes in. So we really just have to keep this so tight. But I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm just going to affirm with a single phrase from something that I read recently because it's just stuck in my mind. It's just ruminating, bouncing around. And I think it's interesting and partly brilliant and also partly challenging. But this phrase comes from Richard Baxter's a call to the unconverted, which was first published in 1658. And this is where the connection lies. You were giving this clarion call of, listen, for every person, there is either you turn to God or you are condemned. There are no other options. It is actually binary. And he speaks to this at great length in this book or in his tome about this uh, unconversion. But this is what I read, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Let's give you a couple of sentences, but I'll tell you the one 
that I'm affirming with. He's talking about Acts 3.19, based this idea of repent and be converted. This is what his kind of commentary is. He's unfolding how he understands this to be applied in the life of every single person. He writes, though, we, though he, that is God, entreat you to hear the voice of his gospel, he will make you hear the voice of his condemning sentence without entreaty. And here's the sentence I'm affirming with. We cannot make you believe against your will, but God will make you feel against your will, end quote. And that just floors me. Like this sense, you know, people talk about, I think, or have the sense sometimes about God as because he is, if you believe in God in any conception, if you have any kind of view of God, often it's the one where God has some authority, but not enough to override, not enough to impose. And what's interesting here is he's talking about, I love that he says, we cannot make you believe. Uh, of course, I think we would say, and he's, of course, writing firmly in the Reformed camp, this idea that when God changes the will that is through regeneration, that will conforms completely and is overdone in such a way that it desires to come before God and to repent and to come in harmony with him. But this idea that whether or not that happens to you, here's the thing that God will will do. He will make you feel his condemnation. And that, that is his authority. That is his right and he will do it. That God will make us feel certain things. Even as Christians, some of that compulsion toward conviction is the thing that he will make us feel by the power of the Spirit. So yeah. I was just floored by that sentence. And I just thought that is something you would probably not read today. No. You wouldn't hear that probably from most pulpits. Yeah. Because it almost sounds too much, but it's actually right on. So Okay, you, we've got like, we're already at 33 minutes. What say you about that sentence? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting um, interesting turn of phrase. Um, exactly, it's right? It's a very Puritan way of speaking, right? Yes. Because Puritans yes. are painted as this, although Baxter has his theological issues and, and challenges, Puritans are painted very much as this sort of cold, unfeeling people. But it actually is very much not the case. Like yes. properly oriented affections and properly regenerated emotions and and volition and affections is very important in Puritan writing. I mean, Jonathan Edwards is one of his more famous works is Heaven is a Place of Love, right? Or is a world of love. Yes. Um so that's an interesting, an interesting take on things. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I think I would need to read, I think I would need to read more about what he is saying in there. Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing is I'm kind of setting everybody up because I'm giving you just a piece of that. It is a proof text. Of course, it exists in a context. Right. So go and look it up. It's the kind of thing that when I got to it, I, I understand probably better than the average person if you've never heard that before, what he's getting after there. Yeah. So if you're hearing that and it's like there's a little bit like kind of clangy in your ear, that's good. That's how it was for me right. that drove me back and to say like, what is he actually saying here? That's why I love it yeah. because... I think there, there's a lot of meat there, but it's the kind of meat that there's maybe a lot of sinew. You got to put that in your mouth and chew on that for a while yeah. to really understand. I think there's a lot of great truth in there, but also that's just good writing. Yeah. That, that's like really good theological writing that challenges you right or wrong to weigh out what he's saying against or to pass it through, as we often say, the sieve of the scriptures. Yeah. So there you go. Good Puritans at their finest. Richard Baxter coming up big. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really beneficial about re reading Puritan writings so we are used to reading writings that are not uh, their original language is not English, right? So we're either reading um, we're either reading patristics, which are written in Greek or Latin, or we're reading 
um, Reformation era stuff, which may be written in Latin, but a very different Latin than kind of old Roman Latin, or maybe it was in French or German or Swiss or something like that. The Puritans largely are, are one of the, the first and only real English originating, um, theology writing that we have until like the modern era. Right. But they're writing in not old English, right? Old English is like almost indecipherable for a lot of us. But they're writing in sort of this like King James English where they're using words in a way that is not totally alien to us, but is different than the common usage. Like this, I get the sense that Baxter is using this this phrasing in a different way than like we normally use this language. That's true. And so it's it it really makes you stop. And that's part of why they're hard to read. We, we had a little conversation about Pilgrim's Progress beforehand, and I know you've been reading that. Pilgrim's Progress is hard to read sometimes because the language is familiar, but it's different enough that you have to really stop and think through it as you work through it. So, yeah, read the Puritans. Can't I can't say that enough. Read the Puritans. Yeah, there's a connection here with that. You're not wrong in the sense that what he's saying there is the, the word usage of feeling is probably deeper than we would give right in our kind of colloquial conversation or usage. So yeah, everybody should look to a call to the unconverted, which by the way is written both to Christians and to unbelievers as well. So when you're reading this, it's, it's almost like it's very, uh, unfortunately it's like very, it's the original Paul washer. You know, like yeah. I think you might read it and be like, yeah, right on. And I, I imagine Richard Baxter would be like, I don't know why you're cheering. I'm talking about <laughs> you. Yeah. And so I think that's actually like as good as any in the the waning moments that we have to like transition this in this conversation about the invisible church. Yeah. That's actually what he's after in his writing. It's not because the unbeliever is probably not going to pick up this work. That's like a call to the unconverted. Yeah. Like unless you're actually really interested, he's actually after the heart of the Christian. And so I want to start in a place that I think is a little bit more practical well, I'm sure we'll touch on like definitionally and technically what we mean by the invisible church. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about some like superpower of the church. We're, we're not. Uh, but I want to start in a place that I think is just plain and one that is deeply ingrained and representative of the scriptures. And that is in Matthew 16. This is kind of classic. And, you know, ironically, but I would say providentially, as you might hear on this really great podcast called For Such a Time as This, I just heard a sermon preached on this passage. Oh, did you? I heard last that same week. sermon. Yes. I think uh, you and I were, were there together. Yes. And uh, so was my father who preached this amazing sermon. It's Matthew 16. And uh, it, it's in verse 13 where Peter is basically confessing Jesus Christ, which maybe is famous to most of us, but uh, perhaps infamous in a way that uh, really convicts us. So I just want to read a couple of verses. This is, uh, of course, Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Pause for a second. Can we just appreciate how brilliant Jesus is in all of his questioning? That He finds the right point of entry. Yeah. He finds the place that breaks down. He finds the place that brings some kind of genuine feedback. And he starts with, not what are you saying, but who's everybody else say? So they go through this list. They say, You know, people say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or let's just say one of the other prophets. Then he turns us around and makes it specific. So he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And of course, as many know, Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Now, we're going to try to, as best we can, avoid all of what that means there about the gates of hell and keys. That's for another time. But I bring this up because, to me, this is the right point of Genesis for this idea of the invisible church, because it's a sad reality that unregenerate men often have this wrong view of Christ. Sometimes, if they're forced to give answers about Christ, it's all of this idea that he's a good teacher and they leave it at that. But we forget that, of course, Christ can only either be Lord of heaven and earth, the sovereign ruler of all men, the omnipotent holy God he claims to be, or he's just a liar, he's a lunatic claiming to be both God and the only savior of mankind. Yeah. He's just not a good teacher. But what this shows is that we talk about who is really among the church. What is the invisible church? It starts with a revelation and a regeneration that comes not necessarily prescriptively, if we, as if you just heard me read here, but as close as possible to that that it is a realization that is brought by the Father through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is the starting point of God building his church. So yeah. to me, practically speaking, what we're talking about when we start to say invisible church is Matthew 16. Yeah. I think that's the right place to start. And I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind, um, especially kind of launching off that, so the historic reformed position is that the church is not something that that sprung into being in you know 33 AD or in in 1 AD right, right? it's um as i've said before a lot of people who are listening to this podcast probably have some sort of history that is involved in popular evangelicalism which is the the ecclesiological default is dispensationalism. I know we usually think of dispensationalism in terms of eschatology, but it's a, it's dispensationalism is a whole system. So every point of systematic theology has a particular dispensationalist perspective on it. And dispensationalists would say the church started in acts two, right at Pentecost, the historic reform position, the covenant theology position and Reformed Baptists hold this too, but I, I, to be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure how they hold this. Um, it'd be an interesting question for um, Brandon Adams next time we get him to come on. But the historic Reformed position is that the church started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve before the fall, right? Adam and Eve were the first believers who trusted Jesus, um, not not in the sort of like federal visions that sense. Like the covenant of works was a, a works covenant, but they were the first believers in the garden of Eden. And that predates fall predates the fall. Right? So the church is those people who, who serve and, and worship God who are in covenant community with him. That said, the invisible church in a sense, even predates that in the mind of God. Right. Right. So I'm going to read from, uh, I want to read from a, a couple confessional statements here. We'll finish with the Westminster, but I want to read from a couple that we don't normally read from. I'm a huge fan of the Scots Confession um, just because I I like the, there's a different approach that they take. It's a different ordering of things and it reflects a different compatible, but different logic than what we see in some of the other, other positions here. It says, as we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, so do we most earnestly believe, this is chapter 16, by the way, so do we most earnestly believe that from the beginning there has been, now is, and to the end of the world shall be a church. That is to say, a company and multitude of men chosen of God who rightly worship and embrace him by true faith in Christ Jesus, who is the only head of the same Kirk church, which is also the body and spouse of Christ Jesus. 
which Kirk is Catholic that is universal because it contains the elect of all ages, of all realms, nations, and tongues, be they of Jews or be they of Gentiles or of communion and society with the Father and with his Son, Christ Jesus, through the sanctification of his Holy Spirit. And I want to jump over just for the sake of time and go straight to the Westminster. So this is chapter 25, section 1. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible— Contain consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fulfilleth in all. So we read we read Matthew 16 and we think on this rock I will build my church. And because I think largely because of the Western mindset of the Roman Catholic Church, sort of like Peter interpreting Peter as that rock that the church is built on that has its hangovers and its tendrils into Western theology as a whole. And then because of this dispensational idea that like the church came into being in, in Acts two and when Pentecost happened, we don't think of the fact that the church exists in time prior to that of all of the faithful who are called and saved by faith through grace. It will exist into the future. And in a certain sense, all of those people are already known in the mind of God. And the invisible church is created and structured and formed and comes into being because of the decree of God, which is an outflow of the election of God, the eternity past, the covenant of redemption by which he chose not just how to save a people, but which people he would be bringing to redemption. That is the, that is where we need to understand it. And although Christ in Matthew 16 and the parallel passages is talking about this. I will build my church. He's talking about it in a temporal frame. The only reason he can say, and the reason he does say that the gates of Hades will not overcome it is because it is grounded in this eternal election of God that cannot be overcome. If this truly was um, in a certain sense, the way I'm going to try to be charitable to my dispensational brothers and sisters here, but dispensationalism broadly speaking, especially classic dispensationalism, argues that the dispensations are marked off by tests that are then failed, right? So so there's a, right. a people who are given a test, and the, if the test is passed, then sort of we we usher in the eschaton, and if, if the test is failed, then, then the next dispensation happens. Well, that theology kind of looks at it, and the church, in theory, could could fall, right? The, the church could be overcome by the gates of Hades, and then I guess in theory, God would just bring another dispensation into being or, or potentially maybe no dispensation. I know most dispensationalists would reject that conclusion, but that's why this is important. This invisible church reality is grounded and established and preserved and protected on the decree of God. God chooses a people. God chooses how to save those people. And then he brings about that salvation in concrete terms. And we don't want to stumble into sort of like eternal justification um, and that kind of like idea that like people are saved before conversion. Salvation happens in time. It happens at a particular point in time, but God knows the end from the beginning and the the invisible church, including future generations of saints who will believe in Christ. They are known to him in eternity past because he has chosen to create and, and redeem them. That's the invisible church. It's not just the invisible church. Now it's not just the invisible church, you know, then previously, it's not the eschatological church to sort of use Doug Wilson's. It's not, it's not like the sum total of saints at the end. And, and it's sort of like right. a question mark of who those saints are. It's the invisible church is known by God because he has chosen them. 
and has decreed to bring about the salvation and building of his church in time. And that's why we see that there's this glorious manifestation of that promise, that victory, the eternal decree right. manifest in Matthew 16. It's as if it's saying, here's the outworking. It's already been secured. But the reason why it's been secured is because it has been decreed. Right. And what God decrees with his mighty outstretched arm, he automatically comes and brings to pass. And so in some ways, like, so we turn this a little bit to like practically then what that means for us. I mean, it's not a bridge too far to cross. I think it's easy in some ways to see that this gives us great hope, great strength, great responsibility, what it means to be a church. I think that obviously for most Christians, we read this passage and we see that what Jesus is doing is he's saying that he's building the church. Right. And of course, I think we'd say like, I mean, this point gets made a lot, but is it made of wood and stone? Is it location? Of course not. Like at one level, this invisible church is based on election, regeneration, right. and the rock of Christ through an enlightened profession. That's what Peter manifests here and what Jesus affirms. The universal nature of the invisible church in all ages is actually not the same as like the local church we find in various right. regions of the earth at any given point in time, right. nor are like the saints in heaven the same as a church in a given geographic region. They're distinguishable in their nature, but to me, the important part is they're unified in their universality. Right. And so the question is, well, like, what does that mean to us then? Like, what, what does that really matter then? Like when we come together to like worship on the Lord's day, uh, a couple of things for me, and, and then I want to hear like your feedback on this. The first is that, and this is super important, I think. Actually, this should influence our attitudes when we step into a time of worship that is corporate on the Lord's Day. And that is that the invisible church is without corruption. Yeah. So I'm sure that people are hearing this are going to say there's going to be a reasonable kind of juxtaposition here, a regional retort, reasonable retort that says, well, I'm part of the true universal church and I'm corrupted with sin. So how can you say that the true universal church is without sin if I'm in it? The point is that because of exactly what you said about this decree of God, as God looks upon the church and he sees the imputed righteousness of Christ on the church, on believers, he sees nothing but the glory and the undefiled Christ right. who fashions the church without spot or wrinkle and is ultimately glorious. So like in a local church and in Christendom as a whole on earth, you know, it's far different. We recognize that we're part of a people who fall into sin. They're regularly tempted and fall into that temptation. But people in the local church who are not saved, corrupt, you know, there's a sense that like the local body is in this, this real sense perfect because of what Christ has done for right. us. And that that is a real category. That's a real saving category. It's a real enlightenment that happens. Here's the other thing that I would add to that. And, and to me, this is, I, I have maybe some vested interest in this as a pastor's child, but I think that this is absolutely the proper outworking, the line that you draw from the fact there's an invisible church. Here's what it means. The invisible church is made up of individual members who, of course, consist of this one body. And it includes those who are alive on earth right now and the saints who are in heaven by itself, by the way. I think that should give us like a greater appreciation for what we do or who we are a part of. When we think about the transcendent nature of what God has done. Yeah. That he's created us for this bigger family that spans time altogether. But then if you get to 1 Corinthians 12, 27, what we understand is that we are part of a body of Christ and members for your own part. So there Paul is speaking to the regenerate church at Corinth 
Each believer who is sealed with the Spirit is part of this body of Christ. And each person who is a true believer must then function in that body to which he or she is called. So any sermon that you've heard, any book that you've ever read, which tries to compel you to participate in church because somehow that's your duty, because you're like, you just ought to. And, you know, there's a lot of responsibilities in a church or in a family. And so you really should do like your own part and pull your own weight. That that's not at all what we're talking about here. Yeah. This is basically saying what Paul is saying, and here's my my strong argument, which you can uh, debate me with if you want, is it is a robbery to the body and to God not to use your gifts. Yeah. And the reason for that is because there is an invisible church from which to which God has saved you into. And so because of that, it is your duty and responsibility and should be your natural proclivity. Yeah to participate in such a way where you're bringing to bear, you are developing, you are consciously aware of the gifts that you have, and you are saying to yourself volitionally, I want to serve. So Paul says that the body is not one part, but many parts. And even those saints in heaven, though you cannot see them nor fellowship with them now, they're part of that universal body. And in some ways, we are all serving that body in the temporal space and realm which God has given us. If you abstract yourself if you abscond from, if you pull away from, if you just take away your responsibility, then what you're actually doing is robbing God. And that is coming from this root of the invisible church. Yeah. So I've just like said a whole, like that could be a whole weird sermon of itself. <laughs> what, what say you about that? Yeah. I mean, I think um, my my Presbyterian polity is going to shine through here. Um, those sermons that you're talking about, have a kernel of truth to them, right? They're, they're not, it's yes. not like those are totally like jacked up, serve, like leave that church no. kind of things. Um, however, when you hear a sermon that focuses entirely on the body of Christ needs your gift because the church needs to function. So now you need to serve in the nursery. Right. It, when it, I, when you isolate the concept of the body of Christ to any particular local congregation, you are now abstracting it from the universal church. The fact of the matter is most churches, even large churches do not have everything they could possibly need within the membership of that given church. And so the idea of the universal church and, and Paul's metaphor of the body is not so much to say that each particular congregation, each local, we're going to talk about the visible church next week. So we'll get into a lot of this stuff, but each local congregation is not the body of Christ. They're not even, I don't even think it's appropriate in a strict sense to call them a body of Christ, right? There's one body. The one body is the universal invisible church. Each particular congregation is a part potentially of that body, right? It's an instantiation. It's a, it's a sort of a suppositum of that body. But when we talk about how the church is a body and each member does its part, and I think this is what you're getting at. That isn't just localized. It's not just related yes, to your church. Exactly. Right? There's giftings that saints have in other other congregations that maybe your congregation needs, right? Maybe your congregation is struggling um, because there's nobody who's competent to do music. There's nobody who's competent to play piano or to sing, right? Or maybe there's maybe like right now in in rural New Hampshire, one of the major major challenges that are facing a lot of smaller churches is their pastoral staff has moved on for whatever reason, um, and they can't afford to call a new pastor. 
And so what do you do in a situation like that? It's a lot of these small Baptist churches. I know, I'm not going to name drop the church, but I know of a local church, a local Baptist church that is a relatively large congregation. And when I say large, I'm talking like New England large. It's a couple hundred people. Um, they actually have members of their their uh, church who are training for the ministry, and they will send out those members of the church to fill the pulpit at these other Baptist churches. And I think that's exactly what Paul's talking about. There, right. there are these churches that by most accounts would be called like micro churches. We're talking like 10 or 15 people who cannot afford to call a pastor. They cannot afford to even pay a pastor, uh, like a, a regular pulpit supply. So this church has the capacity to help them and they do. That's the body of Christ in action. Now that happens on a micro scale. That happens on a, a local scale in individual congregations. And that, that's reality. There's people who are competent in financial management. There's people who are competent in music. There's people who are competent to, to provide pulpit supply and they, they are, you know, they're elected as elders. Th that's true on a local scale, but that's not necessarily what Paul is talking about. And I think that's important. And I think if we don't, if we start our reflection on the nature of the church from the local perspective, we get stuck in that, that sort of like mindset. Right. We get stuck on that register that the local church is the definition of things and the invisible church is like an extension of that. In reality, right. the invisible church is the primary reality that we need to think it's about. the other way around. And each individual congregation is a, it's not an extension of the invisible church. It's like a breaking into reality of the invisible church, into the real world, into the physical concrete world. Not that the invisible church isn't real, but it's a visible breaking in of the invisible church into particularized situations. So that's why we needed to start with the invisible church. And I wish we had more time. One of the things that I think would be really interesting um, for a future definitive episode on the invisible church is to look at the book of Revelation. Because I think yeah, most people sure. don't think about Revelation as, a, as an ecclesiological book. They don't think of it as a book that teaches the theology of the church. But there is so much in the book of Revelation about the nature of the church. Just off the top of my head here, God opens up books towards the end of Revelation, right? There's the Lamb's book of life. And we think of that in terms of like individual believers. But we also don't realize that is, that's the membership role of heaven, right? That's, right, the, exactly. that's the list of all the members of the invisible church. Now that's at the end of time. Do we think that God was like uh, was like in heaven like adding to that list as people become converted? Or is that is that a a visual vision that John has that represents God's eternal decree? And the way that he communicates this reality to John in this vision is as a book with names written in it. Yeah, it's bulk, right? So we think about that. That's the invisible church. That's the membership roles of the invisible church. Well, now when we shift into the local congregation, to the the um, to the visible church, the particularized church, well, we have membership roles there too. So, like a lot of what we, a lot of um, church history, has sort of looked at what we see in Revelation ecclesiologically and has patterned their practices on on what we see in Revelation. So the fact that we have a formal list of members for a particularized congregation, a lot of denominations have explicitly patterned their language based on that passage with the Lamb's Book of Life. Right. And when you when you excommunicate someone, you are blotting them out of the membership roles of 
of the local church, that is patterned after where, where God says he will blot you out of the, the Lamb's book of life if you apostatize. Now, there's a lot of complex theological discourse that needs to happen to understand that in view of decrees and election and whatnot. But we have to get our head around the nature of the invisible church before we move on next week to talk about the nature of the local church. And then we're going to get into like specifics about Presbyterian polity and Baptist polity and all that stuff. Yeah, the, the polity party. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which, which is going to be great. Everybody's like, finally, can we just talk about polity? Of course, I think you're right on about that stuff. Like, even there, what we find is so many churches have been particular to represent a shadow or representation of the very thing that's kind of coming to us in the scriptures here. It's a pattern. It's a pedigree. And so, you know, like, obviously, what we have with Jesus here in Matthew 16 is him bringing forward this as the normative way in which things work. And I think that's important. And I, I like what you're saying. That's what I was driving at is you don't roll up yourself into the invisible church. You are yourself right. as a Christian because of the invisible church, which God has already set into place and is bringing about by his own power, which in some ways, like I think gives us some freedom. It gives us some expression. It gives us this ability to come to God and say, Lord Jesus, have your way with us. We have expectation without agenda. Yeah. I think there's something freeing in that. And yet we understand that we play a role in it because Paul says, whatever your part is to play, whatever your gifts are to give, you ought to do that thing. In fact, pulling away from that is a robbery. It's not just kind of this passive resistance or this saying I'm present, but not active. He doesn't allow for such a category. It either is you are part of the invisible church or you're robbing God. So when we come to Matthew 16 and God says, or Jesus says, I'm building my church. You know, those who know Greek far better than I, they're going to find that's like an active indicative. And so it means that he will do it later and he continues to do it and he will not stop doing it until it's complete in heaven. So wherever Christ is in a Christian, you have the true invisible church because any indwelling believer is a representative of that church is knit together by the spirit of God. It's going to continue to be built until Christ returns. He continues to gather his elect in from the four corners of the globe. And to your point, the physical inbreaking, kind of like incarnational manifestation of that is wherever you show up on the Lord's day morning, that invisible church to some degree or another is being made manifest. So like, I just find this lovely. It's, it's almost like when you embrace this, you find that God is going before you and he's also your rear guard, that he's doing this thing and that you're part of this great thing and you should be part of this great thing. And that does require some volition, but even that volition comes out of a regeneration, not a rehabilitation, but a regeneration in which God elects, changes the heart and falls you, cause you to fall in line in the way that even Richard Baxter was talking about this idea that you are now coming with your, your fullness of who you are because God has changed you. And then you're investing your life, not because somebody said, you know what, there's a lot of things to do here. And you should really play your part, but because you are in love with your savior. Yeah. And because of that, you find that now you've been saved personally. It's not this like Finney kind of style, like when the roles are called up yonder, will your name be written on the book? But right. as the people of God, not as a person of God, but as the people of God, you find yourself together with everybody else. And so because of that, you find that in your togetherness, that you're not just like better together as a psychologist would tell us but that we're better together because we're united in Christ as the head. And so because he's designed 
his own church to be perfectly suited and to be perfectly blameless and to see when God looks at it, this undefiled nature of the Savior itself, our first brother, that we find we serve in that way. We give unreservedly both of time and wealth. And then we find ourselves just participants yeah. because why wouldn't we be? That That's what it means to come together and to love one another and, and to love God. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you'd expect. It's the kind of thing that no matter what epoch or age you're in, this is what you'd expect to hear on the, for such a time as this podcast, uh, which I'm sure will be covered in one of their upcoming definitive episodes on the invisible church. I'll just say, I made a joke about like a K MacArthur Bible study for such a time as this. There is a podcast called for such a time as this. And it is there seems really? very much like a K MacArthur style kind of person. Has she ever been on it? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I'm, 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 <laughs> There are like millions of podcasts, so I'm sure there are probably more than one that is called For Such Time As This, but there will only be one that's worth listening to at some point in the future when we get around to making it. Well, that, well, that's true. Listen, here's a question. I don't know if you know this off the top of your head. How many Reformed Brotherhood podcasts are there? Are we the only one or are there other? The are we really? So your sister who doesn't listen to the show, uh, your wife also does not listen to the show. Factually uh, correct. Was looking for the show because she wanted to listen to mom's episode. And okay. she let me know that if you search for the word reformed on Spotify, that we are the fifth result. So I thought that was pretty good. Oh, I thought that was pretty good. Okay. Listen, I'll, I'll take that. If, if only because if that gets more people in the family, you know, like as we close, because this is an episode about the invisible church, I, I hope that people sense this from us, that there's like a genuineness in this. We talk about like the telegram chat. Telegram is just an app that allows people to connect. And you go to t.me backslash reform brotherhood to join this group of like-minded people who are listening and processing and talking and praying and all this great stuff. This really is a family. It's not your church family, but it is in some ways representative of what we're talking about here. And this, this idea that we have believers from all over the world coming together to, in some ways, you know, as iron sharpens iron, to talk theology, but to live out a life that is committed to our Lord Jesus Christ, to support one another. It doesn't supplant or replace the local church, which God has given. And we're going right. to talk about this, I think, a lot next week. But beyond that, there is a place for this kind of thing. And it is a great time to be alive where you can connect with other people like this. Yeah. So to that end, to make a, a shameless plug, how can people connect with us and with others who are maybe thinking, are there other people that actually listen to Tony and Jesse talk <laughs> every week? How can they connect? Well, you can go to our website, reformbrother.com. You'll find links to all the episodes. Uh, there's a link to a merch store there if you want to buy some gear. Um, and then, of course, Jesse just mentioned the Telegram chat. You can go to t.me slash reformbrotherhood. We recently got topics. Um, so the group has gone a little bit crazy with topics. So we need to maybe pare that down a little bit. Uh, but now you can uh, come in there. There's a number of different channels that you can look at to sort of keep things different. There's one for like pictures of babies. There's one for like books we're reading and stuff like that. Um, or there's a questions and answers area, which is, I mean, someone just asked about like, is there an app to extract text? Um, so I don't have to send screenshots of books I'm reading to people. I can just pull the text. So there's lots there. And I will tell you, I've heard this multiple times from more from people in the chat. Um, and it's been my experience too. Social media, Facebook, Twitter is just a just a barren, uh, barren wasteland of toxicity and and just grossness most of the time. Um, this group really is kind of an oasis in my experience. Um, people in the group genuinely care. 
people are, are consistently asking about prayer requests. And then a couple of weeks later, a couple of days later, actually follow up and ask how things are going. Um, there's a number of people who have medical concerns that we're actively praying about and, and we get updates. Right. Um, it really is a, a, a nice, not to replace your local congregation, of course, but it's a nice place online to experience other Christians in other parts of the world. Um, we've got people from Scotland. We've got people from Europe. We've got people from all across different reformed traditions. Um, there's a couple of people who aren't part of reformed traditions who've sort of wandered in over time. Um, people have come and gone. So check it out. T.me slash reform brotherhood. Telegram is super easy to use. Um, I would just get rid of like Apple messenger and just like text your family on telegram <laughs> is the way to go. Uh, but yeah, check that out. And then, um, you can always email us at info at reform If you've got a question you want, uh, answered on the show, something like that. Or if you've got a question about something we said, we're happy to, to look through those emails and respond as we can. I want to ask it just so people know telegram is a messaging app, but this is kind of like a way for brothers and sisters to connect and kind of this live yeah. chain of dialogue. Right. And so here's the deal, loved ones, you can just stop us right now. We're already at an hour, seven minutes, but I'm going to ask Tony a question because I'm just curious because I recently took a little look at all the channels oh, that are existing in this little kind of amalgam of dialogue that's happening on different topics. And there's one in particular that I saw that I was like, I do not understand this particular channel. I know which one I'm you're just going to leave it at that. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I think about? I know which one you're talking about. <laughs> okay. So maybe we don't have to say it because we'll just drive people to it so they can take a look at it. What is up with that channel? Where do they come from? What is that whole purpose of that topic? I'm assuming you're talking about the channel called Help Wesley's Wondering for a Future Wife. <laughs> So Wesley is one of the members of the group and he's, he's posted a couple times kind of like dating question advice stuff. So it's yeah. been kind of a little bit of a, a little bit of a running joke that we give him dating advice once in a while. So he, he created that one. It's actually been one of the more active messages, but if you, <laughs> if you look through it, most of it is pretty, uh, most of it is pretty unrelated. It's lots of just goofing around. So we will eventually start to like pare down some of these channels. Um, some of them have gotten a little bit uh, nuanced and crazy and, and it can get a little overwhelming to have like a thousand channels going on. But uh, right. right now it's a lot of fun. The community is is very friendly. It's very, uh, very much focused on the the right things, right? We want to be charitable. We want to be gracious. We want to honor God with our speech. It's not uncommon if one member says something that's a little out of line or snarky for someone else to just gently come along and say, Hey, that was a little bit, a little bit aggressive, or that was, that was inappropriate um, or something like that. Um, we encourage each other to, to just show Christian charity, not only to each other, but people have come to me when they see me have not a great interaction on Twitter. They've come to me through knowing me in this channel and say, Hey, that was a little bit snarky. Are you sure that was the, that was the, the way you wanted to approach that? So it, it really does serve as a great way for Christians who are listening to the show or just some of them aren't listening to the show to just sort of have a place online and the real time nature of it. And the fact that these are, these are mostly screen names that have like real people's names associated with them. Right. And you know that they're probably looking at them on their cell phone in real time, right next to their other text messages and stuff. That that lack of anonymity, I think, has has sort of weeded out some of the worst kinds of behavior that we saw on social media. So we're not perfect. Sometimes we get it wrong. But I think for the most part, it's a pretty chill place to be. It's an interesting place. So it's a new year, loved ones. If you're looking to connect in a totally different way, maybe you've never done this before. Maybe in the past, you first talked about this, you thought it's not for me. 
I would challenge you and say, yeah, give it a try. Yeah. Jump, jump in. Check it out. Dip your toe into the Reformed Brotherhood waters. Yes. And what you'll find is they are deep and warm and sweet. <laughs> well, I don't know how to follow that up, so I'm just going to say this. Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. <laughs> Love the Brotherhood. <laughs>